everyone. I'm Jim Garrison. Welcome to the Wisdom Forum, where we're in preparation for the State of the World Forum coming up this November in Washington, D.C., that is going to be dealing with the issue of climate change and how to embark on a global mobilization for the world to green its economy within the next 10 years. Each week, we are interviewing a different notable figure that's really making a difference in climate change. This week, we're interviewing Bill McKibben, who's an author and environmentalist who's been writing on global warming probably longer than anyone, beginning with his book published in 1989 on the end of nature. And I would welcome people to go to his website at uh, BillMcKibben.com, where you can find out a lot of information. So thank you, Bill, for uh, joining this call. Uh, my pleasure. So, Bill, let me start with your sense of what the latest salient issues are in climate change, particularly given the gathering of several thousand scientists in Copenhagen several weeks ago. What do you think are the facts that people should know and where do you think the greatest dangers lie? Well, I think that it's become clear in the last uh, 18 months or two years that change is happening much more quickly than even the most dire predictions of a few years ago. You know, I've been following this for a very long time, having written the first book on it many, many years ago now, in 1989. And so, you know, I thought I had... I thought we'd all internalized all the worst-case scenarios, but it turns out that the, both the scale and pace of things is faster, much bigger and faster than we'd anticipated even a few years ago. And what seems to be happening is that the feedback loops are all kicking in brutally hard. You know, melt of summer ice in the Arctic was maybe the most vivid example in 2007 and again in 2008, not only proving global warming but also amping it up as it removes that nice white mirror at the top of the world. But um, there's plenty of other bad feedback loops, too. Sudden spikes in methane production from beneath the permafrost and tundra, on and on. One of the principal causes for concern that uh, I have had is the report from MIT and the University of Pennsylvania that's been saying that even if the governments fulfill all of their currently negotiated obligations and the Copenhagen Accords are successfully negotiated, which are essentially around a commitment to reduce carbon emissions by 80% by the year 2050, that global temperatures will rise by probably a minimum of four degrees Celsius and we'll be looking at 600 parts per million of CO2. What's your sense on both the MIT report, do you see that as basically accurate, that what the governments are doing will be essentially too little too late? And what would be your principal recommendation, say, to Barack Obama or to the EU or to India or China as to what we actually have to do to deal with this problem? It's become pretty clear what we have to do. We finally have a useful baseline number, Jim. The world's foremost climatologist, Jim Hansen at NASA, and his team, in the um, early winter of 2008, issued a new study that finally gave us a bottom line number to aim for. And the number they 
used was 350 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. Anything more than that, they said, was not compatible with the planet upon which civilization developed or to which life on Earth is adapted. Now, that's a tough number. We're already past it. We're at 387 and going up about two parts per million a year. To get back to it, to let the Earth scrub some of that carbon out, we'd essentially have to stop putting almost any more in, and we'd have to do it very, very quickly. Hansen's data shows that unless the world is out of the business of burning coal by 2030, and the Western world well before that, uh, we have very little chance of ever getting back to that 350 mark. So it's dramatically up the stakes, and it's why we've put together this big global campaign, 350.org, that is aimed at spreading that news in advance of Copenhagen. We're going to have a huge global day of action on October 24th that we need everybody to help us with. Everywhere around the world, high up in the Himalayas, you know, there'll be people with banners and signs, climbers, you know, the 350 scuba divers on the Great Barrier Reef. There'll be things going on, hopefully, in every city and town that we can reach around the world. We've got good networks in India and China, in Africa, uh, in South America, in the Middle East. We need people in every community in, in, in the United States and Canada to join in, too, on October 24th and think of clever ways to dramatize that number so that for Copenhagen it becomes the most well-known number on the planet, not just the most important, and so that we can use it to set a kind of psychological bar for success or failure at that conference and really have some hope of driving the political process much harder and quicker than it wants to go. And are you uh, engaged in some of the negotiations or uh, around Copenhagen? Is there any realistic chance, in your view, of, of getting them to look at a much more urgent timeline? At the moment, there's no realistic chance. Um, if those negotiations were held today, they would produce nothing of, of real value. But that's why we do, why we organize movements, you know, why we have to have a movement to change that political reality. That's what's really important. And if we can build that movement quickly enough, then there's a chance to open up some political space to, to press them. We shall see. Now, I'm not by any means guaranteeing that it will succeed. It's possible nothing will succeed. We may already have passed the point where the physical momentum of these changes is so great it will be very hard to rein them in. But the best science tells us we have a narrow window which means to me that it's, we're morally obligated to work very, very hard, not just to change things in our own houses and communities, but also to work for real global cap on carbon because you can't make the math work one household at a time, one, even one town at a time. If we're not able in very short order to change the whole economics of carbon around the world, and the odds of doing anything about climate are exceedingly small. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it, one of the issues that we're dealing with at the uh, State of the World Forum in November is this issue of political will. You know, it's in, in some ways the real crisis of climate change is that the truth is not enough. You know, simply presenting people with the facts about global warming and rising temperatures and escalating parts per million doesn't seem to be a sufficient motivator to get people to deal with what is quite clearly the most extraordinary and comprehensive crisis 
literally in human history. That's and like people need people need ways to feel. Uh, I mean, it's it's understandable people's reluctance to grapple with it, not only because of the inertia in our lives, but also because it seems so huge, and it's hard to tell people, hard to figure out how to do anything that has any appreciable hope of really denting the problem. That's why we organize the best we can these huge, we did it on a national basis in 2007 with Step It Up when we organized uh, 1,400 simultaneous rallies across the country, and now why we're doing this on a global basis. It worked when we did it in this country. We changed Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton's energy platforms. We hope that it can have a similar effect uh, globally. We hope that we're giving people an opportunity to actually do something concrete uh, that really has some hope of, of mattering. That's why we set up 350.org, and it's been very exciting to see it kicking in in countries around the world, including countries that have done nothing to cause this problem. What countries would you say are responding the most positively, and, and which countries are you experiencing where there's virtually no headway at all? We're having, so with 350.org, we're having great luck virtually everywhere. Um, really? Because we're working with young people, uh, communities of faith, the kind of you know that's who we're organizing, and we'll find out which of those countries' political systems can bend enough to do anything about this or not. But just in terms of organizing, we're having enormous success. You know, across India, we've had big rallies and demonstrations and things, which you know even a year or two ago didn't have, wouldn't have happened. But now there's this. India Youth Climate Network. We've had we have organizers at work in the most difficult parts of the world. You know, in the Middle East, uh, we have an office in Beirut, and they're organizing wonderful stuff for October 24th, all across the you know the belly of the beast, the place where all the oil comes from. You know, even in this country, enormous luck. We've just come back from Washington D.C., where we had the first big mass civil disobedience about coal and global warming and convinced Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi that the time had come to stop burning coal in the congressional power plant just down the block from Capitol Hill. So we see signs of movement. The question is whether we can build this movement large enough, quickly enough. And and basically, that doesn't depend on us. That depends on everybody listening to this. That's what 350.org is, nothing more than a kind of uh, invitation to a potluck supper, and we'll see who, who comes and what they bring. Yes, absolutely. Well, as someone who's, uh, you know, done a lot of civil disobedience against nuclear power plants in the 70s and, you know, during the Vietnam War at the Pentagon and so forth, I I applaud any efforts to increase activism because in the end, you know, that's the critical mass that you have to ignite in order to compel political action. It's an extraordinary thing if you think about it that the politicians that we elect to lead us generally wait till the public absolutely demands a certain direction before they take action. Yeah, but think about someone like Obama, who on climate clearly wants to do good stuff. I mean, he's already done good stuff, but he's up against enormous vested interest, you know. I mean, ExxonMobil made more money last year than any company in the history of money, okay? In our political system... (laughs) That buys them a lot of influence. So if we want Barack to have some chance of doing what he wants to do, we've got to help give him the political space in which to do it. 
we have to make those congressmen and senators worry about us at least as much as they worry about Exxon Mobil, you know. And that's doable. We can do it if we get enough people mobilized, but it doesn't happen automatically. And you can't, you know, Election Day is barely the beginning of this kind of work. We now have, the, you know, for eight years, we didn't have any chance of anything happening. Now we have at least the possibility, and so we'll be crazy not to take it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I remember Van Jones uh, several times during the campaign saying at various rallies that, you know, at one level we have to elect Barack Obama to save us, but as soon as he he's elected, we have to realize that we have to save him. And what do you know, Van Jones <laughs> now got a great job right in the White House, so it's a good yeah. sign. But, um, you know, one of the updates that I have, too, is around Brazil. I just got back from Brazil and had an extraordinary experience meeting with various civil society people, business leaders, political leaders, including Aisu Navis, the governor of the state of Minas Gerais, who's running for the president because uh, President Lula is sort of termed out next uh, year. And all across Brazil, there was an extraordinary receptivity, in part because they know that the equatorial regions are going to be hit the earliest and the hardest with global warming, uh, in part because they know that the Amazon, with a four-degree Celsius rise in temperatures, will be between 80 and 90 percent destroyed. So they have, a, obviously, a, a clear incentive to uh, deal with this seriously. But I think that one of the realities that we may face as the United States and Europe uh, are so preoccupied with the collapse of the financial markets. It may be a country like Brazil, you know, from the global south that really stands up and, and bites the bullet and and really declares that it's going to try to do by 2020 what the rest of the world is negotiating right now around 2050. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, I noted in one of your books, uh, I think it was Hope, Human, and Wild, if I remember correctly, that you wrote about uh, Curitiba, Brazil, along with uh, Kerala, India, as, as a community that really had learned to live lightly on the earth. And I'm wondering if you could just describe what you discovered there and, sure. and uh, extrapolate for something that other communities might learn from. Well, Curitiba is a very interesting place, a um, city of about 3 million in the south of Brazil uh, on the headwaters of the Iguazu River, beautiful spot. Probably the most, well, certainly one of the most pleasurable cities to be in, in part because it's so designed for pedestrians and public transit. Uh, not much for cars. It's a kind of inconvenient place to drive because there are these bus lanes everywhere and they get priority. Everybody takes the bus. The bus system pays for itself with no government subsidy because everybody, every bus is full all the time. And the reason they're full all the time is because they come so often that you can completely depend on them. Beautiful, big, triple-hinged buses uh, move more people than the New York City subway system does in the course of a day. And as a result, Curitiba, you know, the average Curitibano uses 30% less fuel than the average urban Brazilian. Uh, that's a big number. They haven't invented any new technology. They've just 
change the way that their community operates some. Uh, and it's now spreading. These bus rapid transit systems that they pioneered in Kirchiva are popping up not only elsewhere in South America, but I've just come back from China, and there were a half dozen cities experimenting at one level or another with the same thing. Same thing there. Very, very good to see. Well, you know, another end of it, it was at the energy level, one of the, the largest energy company in Brazil, Samigi, told me that they had basically figured out the uh, handwriting on the wall some 10 years ago, and they're now over 90% clean. And um, they are doing very well on the New York Stock Exchange while other more unsustainable companies are collapsing. And I think that's an example, uh, both in terms of a city and in terms of an energy company, that if you are in line with natural systems and are, in the case of Samigi, using generating most of your energy from uh, renewables, that you can prosper in the current climate. Absolutely. And there's examples like that popping up many places. The question now is whether we can make any of this happen quickly enough on a large enough scale to matter. And that's the problem with global warming. It's a very time-limited problem. Uh, Rajendra Pachari, the head of the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who accepted the Nobel alongside Al Gore last year, said uh, recently that if we haven't made fundamental shifts in our energy system by 2012, then these feedback loops that are beginning to drive climate change may be so far out of control that nothing we'll be able to do will recoup the situation. That's why it seems to us at 350.org so urgent to get to work right away in a big, dramatic, public way. Yes, and on that note, just referring to, I think it was your last book on uh, deep economy, what would be your sense if you had to give some priorities to corporations and I would say managers of larger enterprises in the economic sector, which is one of the main drivers of global warming, what could they do the most efficiently to both reduce their carbon footprint and to generate a prosperity simultaneously? Well, there's a thousand things that they can do, and they'll do them the minute they get a strong price signal about carbon. The minute that it, we, you know, we have to pay for some of the cost that coal and gas and yep. oil are wreaking on the climate, you know, and as soon as that happens, you know, markets won't do that by themselves. They can't. They can't put that piece of information into play. But if the political system does that, then markets will work to very quickly spur a lot of innovation, both in terms of conservation and, and new kinds of supply. And it's possible to do it. You know, there's lots and lots and lots of energy waste in our system. We're going to get the first 25 or 30 percent of our, you know, energy savings basically for free without hardly trying because we waste so much. I mean, it'll be like losing weight by cutting your hair, you know. It'll become really easy. And that's job one. I have no doubt that we'll be able to, you know, you can talk to people like Amory Lovins at the Rocky Mountain Institute or, or a dozen others who can tell you uh, list long lists of things that we could do. We're not doing them because there's not a price signal that's causing people to, in enough large enough numbers to focus their attention on any of this. So 
you would agree then with uh, Friends of the Earth and Earth Policy Institute and a range of other NGOs that probably the most effective signal in that regard would be for the governments to uh, put in fairly hefty carbon taxes. Yeah, I, so that, I don't think you need, I think what we need to do, you know, the exact way you implement it is, you know, up for political debate. What isn't is that we need is the cap on carbon set at levels that scientists tell us are enough to deal with the problem. And when that happens, the price of carbon will rise and the price of gas at the pump will rise and we'll begin to change our habits, hopefully quickly. We were beginning to do that last year when the price of gas went up to $4 a gallon. Now, we can do it in a way that doesn't bankrupt people. We can take the proceeds from the auction, the money that ExxonMobil has to pay to buy those permits to pollute. We can take that money and we can send it back to people every month in a check. That's what the Obama administration is sort of leaning towards. And if we do that, then people will be made whole against increases in the price of energy and at the same time, we'll still be getting that price signal that will change behavior. That's the kind of solution that's seeming to emerge on Capitol Hill. And I think politically it's the, probably the wisest course we can take at this point. If you had to make recommendations to the nations as we approach Copenhagen negotiations this December, which virtually everyone is saying is sort of the last hope for the world to kind of get it together on climate change, what would be your recommendations? There's only one recommendation, and that's 350 parts per million. We have a number now. We need a plan that'll agreement that'll get us there as soon as possible. But the number itself isn't up for negotiation. You know, physics and chemistry don't compromise. They don't bargain. They don't meet you halfway. They tell you what what reality is, and we have to respect that reality and get to work. That's why we're at 350.org running this huge global effort so that people everywhere will know what this number means. Now, we can't do it without lots and lots and lots of people in communities across America pitching in to make it real, and I, and I hope that's what's going to happen. Well, I appreciate this. I We'll do everything I can on the State of the World Forum website to link up with 350.org. We're working a lot with Lester Brown and his Plan B 3.0, which is basically saying that in order to get to that 350 mark, the countries of the world need to commit to reducing carbon emissions by 80% within 10 years. So one of the things that we're working on is what we're calling a 2020 vision and we're putting together some specialists, uh, not only in this country, but uh, various places around the world that are really starting to think that if you were able to persuade governments to do by 2020 what they're currently negotiating in terms of 2050, you know, what would that actually mean? You know, what kind of pathway is there to move from fossil fuels to renewables. It's, it's one thing, you know, as President Kennedy did, you know, to announce that you're going to put a man on the moon in 10 years. It's another thing to scientifically and technically figure out exactly how Neil Armstrong, you know, goes up in a lunar module and actually lands and, and, and sets his foot on the 
lunar surface. So one of the things that the State of the World Forum is, is trying to put together is um, that team that could actually begin to make very specific recommendations. That's one of the things that I discovered in Brazil is that people are alarmed. They're just waking up. They're under the illusion that the governments are sort of vaguely doing the right thing. When you tell them that 80% by 2050 is, is basically like, you know, arranging deck chairs on the Titanic, their first impulse is sort of, what do we actually do? What concrete steps can we take? So it's within that context that I think 350.org is really providing a very useful kind of object point down the road. Just think 350. Obviously, it has to be done at a global level or it won't work if one country does it, but none of the other countries do it. And then the question is, you know, technically, how do we actually accomplish that goal? And that's what we're trying to put together among various other things, you know, as we we focus on Rajendra Pachari's very clear declaration that unless we do something by 2012, basically things will synergize beyond any human control. Absolutely right. You've got all the questions right, and I think the key is opening up the political space. You know, if people will help, then we have some chance at changing the politics of this enough to allow it to happen. No guarantees. Chance, though. Yeah. (laughs) I always remember, you know, that what really distinguishes, you know, the human species from the other species is not that we have tools or we use language because many species use tools and all species have communication. It's really our extraordinary capacity to adapt and our extraordinary resilience. We're virtually the only species that has been able to adapt to all the climates and almost all earth conditions. And so as we face this next challenge, which is really unprecedented, that we have to get right the first time, Somehow we have to unleash human creativity and adaptivity. And I think what you're doing, Bill, has been extraordinary. And basically, I I should say that it was reading your op-ed in the Los Angeles Times, I think it was last April, that really galvanized me to mobilizing, you know, the State of the World Forum on climate change because it was somehow reading your op-ed that I realized that, you know, we are basically out of time and all of us have to pay attention. And all of us, whatever we're doing in terms of our personal lives, we need to retool and include major work on global warming as part of what we're doing both personally and professionally. So, uh, Bill Kibben, I really want to thank you for that well, um, that op-ed. That's very good. That makes my day. And, and thank <laughs> you for all your good work. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, Jim. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.